Chapter 4 records for us two meetings Jesus has in his travels. The first meeting is with a woman of Samaria. The second is with an official. It is the second meeting, which alone is called a sign by John. You'll remember that we are still in the book of signs for John's gospel. And we are told it is the second sign performed by Jesus. The first sign, of course, being the turning of water into wine at Cana. But the first meeting, though it's not a sign, is certainly not any less significant. It is also no less miraculous. It is, in fact, a supernatural act of divine revelation. Let me say that again. The meeting with the woman at Samaria is an act of divine revelation. And so we will take each encounter in turn, though we will spend the majority of our time in Samaria with the woman by the well. So first, we will unpack the significance of the encounter with the Samaritan woman. And then second, we will unpack the significance of the encounter that Jesus has with the official. What these two stories have in common is that both of them witness a breaking into our present time, something of the world to come. The world to come, heaven itself, breaks in in these two encounters in a very clear and powerful way. So first of all, let's talk about the encounter in Samaria. Jesus, we are told, is on his way from Judea to Galilee. And as he passes through Samaria, he comes to a town called Sychar. Now, it's there at Sychar that he becomes weary from his travels. Now, this ought not to be glossed over too quickly. Jesus is indeed the divine Son of God. But he is also fully, he is also really, he is also truly human. While the divine being upholds his human nature at every point, it does not divinize the human nature, and thus it does not take away from the human nature the common infirmities that humanity experiences in this life. That's evidenced here by our Lord's weariness. He he grows weary in his travels, just like you and just just like I would grow weary in our travels. And so in his weariness, and in accordance with the perfect plan and providence of God, he stops at Jacob's well. It is in this area that Mount Gerizim, Mount Gerizim, was the pride of the Samaritans. Here on this mountain at one time stood their temple. It was the place where the Samaritans believed that God was supposed to be worshipped. We are told that it is the sixth hour of the day, which is probably around noon. And it is then that a woman from Samaria shows up at the well. She has come to draw some water. Now, upon arriving, Jesus asks her to give him a drink. Now, the strangeness of the request is at once clear. As the woman says in verse 9 of chapter 4, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? 
You see, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Samaritans were regarded as half-blooded Jews. They were descendants of returnees from exile who had married Gentiles. Further, they were a part of the northern kingdom of Israel, and the Jews were of Judah, the southern kingdom. And the bad blood between these two kingdoms, of course, runs back for centuries, even to the time of the divided kingdoms. Note here John's parenthetical statement, which explains the tension. As he says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So how is it that Jesus, a Jew, would speak to this Samaritan woman? But Jesus is no ordinary Jew. He comes not with disdain for the Samaritans. But unlike most of the other Jews his day, he comes to the Samaritans with compassion, with love, and even with redeeming grace. And compassion and love, not just for the Samaritans, but for sinners of all kinds. He comes as a savior of sinners from Jerusalem to Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Sinners that are included from every tribe, from every nation, and from every tongue. And so his answer talks about a gift, which is ironic. He asks her for something, but he's really here to give her something. And so he says in verse 10, if you do the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so he says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Here he talks about a gift, a gift which he further describes as living water. This living water that Jesus speaks about, which is a gift that he apparently has the ability to give. This living water stands in contrast to the water that the woman has been talking about. There is the water that you can get on earth, and then there is the water that you can get from heaven. She is desirous of water from the earth. Jesus is speaking about living water, which is from heaven. And by comparison, comparison to this living water, the water that is found on earth is like dead water. But the water from heaven is living, it is alive, and it gives life. Immediately, as we can see here, she misunderstands Jesus. Similar to the way in which Nicodemus, back in chapter 3, missed Jesus' meaning about being born again. And like Nicodemus, this woman takes Jesus literally. She's thinking about literal, earthly water, the kind that you can get from a well. And you can imagine her thoughts. Wouldn't this be great if this man can give me living water always? I wouldn't have to come up here to the top of the hill to draw water from this well anymore. How convenient it would make 
things. How, how much easier this man can make my life if what he is offering is true. But you see, what is being offered here is something better. Jesus makes his meaning explicit in verses 13 and 14. He is explicit. Whoever drinks from Jacob's well will thirst again. Whoever drinks of this earthly water here down below will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that he has come to give will never thirst again. For the water that Jesus gives wells up into eternal life. And here the contrast between the temporal, the earthly, and the eternal, the heavenly, is clear. The well brings temporal relief, but Jesus satisfies forever with the true water that comes from heaven. Though sadly, verse 15 makes clear that she still doesn't get it. She still thinks that Jesus is offering her temporal, earthly water. That gets her attention. She wants it. Now this brings Jesus to try another tactic in verses 16 through 19. He will try yet once again with all patience, to teach this woman what the true living water really is. And so he tells her to go. Get your husband and come back to me. Now, she denies that she has a husband, and technically that's correct. In fact, she does not have a husband. However, Jesus discloses to her that he knows that she actually has five husbands. But what is more, she is with another man who is not her husband. And immediately she recognizes in this man someone different, someone special, someone at least with special knowledge. How does he know this? I don't know who he is. He's not a member of our village. How does he know these personal details? In fact, she can only conclude that he is a prophet. Now, the next words are odd. At least they kind of fit oddly in the passage. It's almost as if she's frustrated here. As if she gets the sense that she cannot win against this guy. She's trying to get out of him this gift, this living water that will make her life easier and more convenient. But she can't even hide her personal life from him. He seems to know everything. He seems to have an answer to everything. He seems to be a prophet. But the one thing she perhaps thinks she can do is beat him in a different debate, not about water. Let's leave that behind for a moment. Let's talk about mountains. And her trump card is what Israel's father did. And her trump card is what Israel's fathers did. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim. 
But the Jews, against the claims of the Samaritans, say the proper place for worship is actually in Jerusalem. And Jesus then gives her a significant answer in verses 21 to 25. There is a lot here, but we will focus our attention for our purposes at verses 23 to 24. Look at verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. In particular now, then, our focus will be upon the idea of worship in spirit and truth. When Jesus speaks that way, what is He getting at here? In short, Jesus brings into view the heavenly nature of His kingdom when He speaks about worship taking place in spirit and in truth. We know this to be the case, at least the idea that Jesus sees His kingdom as as being heavenly in nature, because of what He says later on in John 18.36 when He explains that His kingdom is not of this world. And so it is that the Father, who is to be worshipped, is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, that is to say, in heaven. And what is heaven? We've said it already in the previous lesson. It is the realm of God's dwelling. It is the place that He made at the very beginning. It is His Sabbath rest. The sanctuary that is not made with human hands, which Isaiah and John saw in Isaiah 6 in Revelation 4. The place of the glory of God where the heavenly host adore and worship Him. Now, the latter citation, Revelation 4, is of special interest to us here. There, John says, when he sees the heavenly throne room of God, he was there in the Spirit. Now, almost certainly what is in view is the manner, that is to say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in which John is made to ascend to the highest heaven and to behold the throne room of God. So when he says that he was there in the Spirit, what he's saying is that he is there by the power of the Holy Spirit. After all, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of heaven. He is the one who formed it and filled it with His glory in the beginning. And now He is the one who lifts His people up from the earth and makes them to draw near to the Father. It is the Spirit who causes sinners to be born again, that they might enter anew into new life in the heavenly places. This means... In other words, then, back to our passage, this means that with the end of the ages, now inaugurated by Christ, Jesus here speaks to us about worship that is being radically transformed from the worship that the people of God knew under the Old Covenant in the days before the inauguration of the end times. So worship now according to the Lord Jesus, which is according to spirit and truth, becomes disconnected, radically transformed from the ways of the old Mosaic ceremonial law. 
You see, the law prescribed for Israel as a church under age, the time, the manner, and the location of God's worship. And the special locale of God's worship was to be Jerusalem, the place of God's temple dwelling, the place where the temple was built that God might there meet with His people in Jerusalem. And this building made with human hands, made by Solomon, prepared for by David, was an ornate building layered with gold on the inside, shiny tables, candlesticks, utensils, and an ark, all signifying heaven itself, but was not itself heaven. But now Jesus tells this woman, that the debates between Jews and Samaritans over the location of proper worship has been rendered irrelevant. And once again, Jesus has answered this woman. This means that when His people gather together to worship the Father, it will not be in ornate buildings, or it will not be upon this mountain or that mountain. Rather, it will take place in spirit and in truth, that is to say, the place of heavenly glory. It will be in Mount Zion, not the earthly Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem. In the place of the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, in the true tabernacle which is above. This is what it means when Jesus says that worship will be in spirit and in truth. And this is why, in part, New Covenant worship is not supposed to be ornate. It is no longer tied to a a building or a particular location or a particular mountain. It is not determined by national borders or by ethnicity. New Covenant liturgical ordinances are, to use the language of Westminster Confession 7.6, fewer in number, administered with more simplicity, and have less outward glory. But for this same reason, the church has the commission that it has. And the commission of the church is glorious. But its commission, as it is carried out with, as the Confession says, less outward glory doesn't mean that it is less glorious. In fact, quite on the contrary, it is more glorious than anything that has ever come before it. New Covenant worship is more glorious than Old Covenant worship precisely because of its less outward glory. To put it tersely, The New Covenant's eschatology, doxology, and now I want to talk about its missiology, are of a singular cloth. Jesus' arrival at the time in which He comes, that time that is His coming and is already here, is the time of the end. The end times have begun in this coming of Christ. The fulfillment of all of the Old Covenant's types and shadows are all the promises of God in the Old Covenant are now here shown to be yes and amen in Jesus Christ. 
God's promises have come to its fruition, made manifest now to this woman upon this hill in Gerizim. The eschatological time inaugurated by Christ as he walks the earth in his first coming carries with it a definitive understanding of what is the significance, the meaning, the purpose, and the work of the church. Its liturgics is defined by its spiritual and heavenly nature, no longer by its earthly location or Old Covenant ceremonial liturgics. And that means also, then, its missiology is also defined by the same spiritual nature and its heavenly locality and identity. And that is at once clear in the events that follow. After Jesus identifies himself as the Messiah, verse 26, we are taken to the disciples. Now, the disciples are just as amazed as this woman is. They're amazed that he is speaking to a woman quite outside of conventions. But she leaves as the disciples are in amazement, she leaves for the town and tells everybody back in town about Jesus. At this time, the Samaritans begin to leave the town. They're following her in order to come see this Jesus of whom she has spoken. Meanwhile, back on the mountain, by the, by the well, the disciples urge Jesus to eat. Jesus tells them about another kind of food that he has. And now we're getting closer to the missiological point that parallels the liturgical point. Jesus talks about this food that sustains him and that nourishes him. And the food that sustains Jesus and nourishes him is doing the will of the Father. Verse 34, and it's at this time Jesus directs the disciples as he's telling them about doing the will of his Father. What is the will of his Father? And what has it to do with the Samaritan woman and the Samaritan village? The disciples are told by Jesus, verse 35, to lift up their eyes. And perhaps, much to their horror, they see a whole Samaritan town coming towards them. And what does Jesus say? The fields, they are white for harvest. That's the missiological point. There's his food. There's his food in the harvest. The harvest among these Samaritans. His food is to do the will of his Father, and his Father's will is that Jesus would gather to himself and into himself one people consisting of both Jew and Samaritan. At last, the dividing wall of hostility will come down, and Jews and Samaritans will be reconciled to God and to one another. Worship is no longer on that mountain or on this mountain. It is in spirit and in truth. Verse 
in the heavenly places where the division between ethnicities falls to the ground completely. And in fact, that is what we see. Verse 39 tells us the glories of the missiological point. Many Samaritans believed in him. And the harvest of souls from every tribe, from every nation, and from every tongue has begun. No longer under the old Mosaic administration. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No longer are the pagan nations surrounding the chosen tribe of Israel, Judah, to be struck down with the sword, to be destroyed completely. No longer is Israel to be called to harem warfare and the destruction of their pagan uncircumcised neighbor. But now, but now in Jesus Christ, in this heavenly kingdom, in spirit and in truth, they shall become one people consisting of every tribe, of every nation, and of every tongue. The mission of the church is from heaven. The mission of the church is characterized by its heavenly nature. The mission of the church is characterized by its end times reality as a commission that is given in the fullness of time. Of course, we know that this is only the beginning. After our Lord's resurrection, He will commission His disciples. They are to preach and to baptize people from all nations and all of this in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Who are the rightful people of God and where are they to worship? Those questions have been answered in Christ who has made us a kingdom and priests of our God and Father, Revelation 1.6. And since that kingdom is not of this world, we have our citizenship in heaven. Citizenship not defined by ethnicity and not defined by geographical borders or by this mountain or that mountain, but rather defined by who is from heaven as they are found in Jesus. Finally, the miracle recorded for us in 46 to 55 develops John's theology. This is the interaction with the official. Jesus interacts with this official, the identity of whom we are not exactly sure. His position is not exactly clear. The Greek word translated literally means little king. Some have said that this is the centurion that is mentioned in Matthew 8 and Luke 7. That, however, is unlikely. And it's unlikely because the details are so very different. Little king is an awkward translation, but official as a translation of the Greek word also fails to satisfy. Perhaps we might use the translation vice-regent or lower magistrate. Most likely, however, he is some sort of a judge or an official. Whoever he is exactly, the point is that he is Rome's man. He is a governing official of Rome. 
not of Judea. If he was Jewish, he was working for Rome, which would have made him despised in the eyes of Jewish nationalists. Of course, if he was a Gentile, he was still despised. Either way, and here's the point, he's not a true Israelite. Like the Samaritans, he would have been seen as as far from the commonwealth of Israel, far from the covenants, far from the law of Moses, far from Israel's interests in the, the land and the promises of God. But what we have here in this man is that he believes, he and his household, verse 53, which fits perfectly with what Jesus has been teaching about the times, the time of the end, the end times. The time is coming and is already here, the time for the true, the heavenly to be revealed, the time of the harvest, the fields are white, God promises to heal His people, and those promises are being fulfilled even in the case of this man and this situation particularly as he heals the official son. You see, the identity of who God's people are is shocking to both friends and enemies. The people of God is being redefined here. It is not the rabbis of Israel. It is not the scribes, it is not the Pharisees, it is not the Jewish nationalists, it is not the nation itself. From Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth, believers, both Jews and Gentiles, are believing in this Messiah. And by faith they are healed, they and their households. Of course, the problem for those who opposed Jesus was not found in the Old Testament Bible itself. This had been God's plan all along. Jesus is not enacting a plan B. He is not enacting some sort of an emergency plan. He's not calling an audible. This is God's plan all along. And in that sense, the events unfolding in and by Jesus of Nazareth are anything but a surprise ending. Now, the pages of the Old Testament are clear. The Messiah will redeem for himself a people from all the nations. The problem is not with Moses. It is with the unbelief in the hearts of men. The witness of Moses is faithful and clear, as we'll see in chapter 5 next. But for now, just consider with me a couple of points to take away from this lesson. The first is doxiological, the second is missiological. First, the doxiological. The true worship is now here. When you worship, remember your worship is taking place and is identified by and characterized by heaven. Buildings, geography, location, inconsequential. Do not confuse your worship space with heaven. It is not the building that is supposed to give you a sense of transcendence. You know you have been made 
to transcend this earth because you receive by faith what the Word of Christ says. You have already transcended this earth because the Holy Spirit has caused you to be born again and united you to Christ and has brought you to heaven if you be in Christ. You now join all the saints everywhere throughout all the world and who have gone before us and the heavenly host in the worship of God. You have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to innumerable angels and festal gathering. And now the worship of the people of God is not confined by walls made with human hands. It is not limited by the geography of this earth. It is united and universal with all of God's people. Second is the missiological point. Even in the days of Jesus, the gospel was going forth from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. This mission would continue on being recorded for us in the book of Acts. There, Jesus commissions His disciples to preach by the power of the Holy Spirit, first to Jerusalem, then to Samaria, to the furthest corners of the earth. It is this mission into which we have entered as the church of God. When we heard and we were made to believe, we were not called to sit idle. Rather, we were called to be harvesters, And to behold, the fields are indeed white with harvest. And to pray that the Lord would send laborers into that harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Let us then by grace enter into that harvest labor and be used of Christ to gather in many from every tribe, nation, and tongue that they may be made to enter with us into a new holy nation where we might all worship together in spirit and in truth.